0: Hello, and welcome to Employment Practices Solutions, Real Solutions Podcast Workplace Investigations Five Pitfalls to Avoid. This podcast is part two of our two part series on pitfalls that rear their heads in some of the most important work that employment law and human resources professionals do in their roles, training, and investigation. Today, we're tackling the pitfalls associated with workplace complaint investigations. I'm your host, Lisa Dishman, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Stephanie Davis and Denise Kay, who have combined more than 35 years of investigations experience at EPS. Both Stephanie and Denise have conducted hundreds, maybe thousands, of complex workplace investigations in their time with EPS. Stephanie and Denise are both licensed employment law attorneys. Stephanie, who's been with EPS for more than 17 years, currently leads the EPS organization as its president. She received her B.S. in political science from Barnard College at Columbia University and her Juris Doctorate from the University of Oregon School of Law. Stephanie practiced law in both New York and New Jersey prior to joining EPS. Denise has been with EPS for 17 years, both as past president and currently a senior consultant. Denise is a recognized human resources and employment law expert. She graduated with a BA from Penn State University with emphasis in organizational communications and industrial psychology and received her Juris Doctorate from Georgia State University College of Law. You can learn the details and see the CVs of both my guests on our website. More details about that later in the podcast. Welcome to you both and thank you for joining me today. Let's get right to the first investigation pitfall, which is choosing the wrong investigator or more specifically choosing an investigator who is too close to the parties involved in the investigation or lacks independence or maybe even both of those things. Denise, can you kick us off with your insight into that particular pitfall?
1: Yes, Lisa, let me give you an example
2: of what we're talking about in that situation based on an investigation that I conducted. I was called in to, quote, (laughs) redo an investigation that originally was being conducted internally by a police chief who supervised some of the parties and then was ultimately named as a witness himself. What happened was, in the the course of the investigation, he ultimately is identified as somebody with relevant information and now is no longer independent to the investigation. So all of that time and energy was kind of wasted before they brought an external investigator into the picture. So luckily, at that point, they did identify that they needed to bring in a third-party neutral investigator, and I was asked to come in and take over the investigation, and in fact, it was my recommendation that we start over because at that point, because of the police chief's involvement, the integrity of the investigation was jeopardized, and then it ultimately drew suspicion within the department because he was named as the initial investigator. So I think it's important for an organization to really think carefully about who they identify as the proper investigator and whether or not that individual might have any implication in the investigation whatsoever before they start tackling the facts of that situation.
0: Denise, in that particular example, was that a reflexive decision that was made by the company and that the chief was often the investigator or was there more to it than that? Because sometimes I know reflexive decisions are sometimes not the best decisions.
2: <laughs> That's a good point. It wasn't a reflexive decision immediately in that that seemed to be the proper channel that a, a company would turn to internally is their chief. Um, I don't think they thought through the allegations sufficiently to realize that it may in fact involve people within the department that he supervises. So. Subconsciously, they probably thought it was the right thing, but they hadn't really thought through the whole implications uh, and the seriousness of the allegations that were out there and, and how that may impact the entire department. And I think the bigger issue was, and this is a special district, so it has, it has its own issues with respect to what needs to be available publicly. So the suspicion issue became a, a very priority issue because of the independence. So we really had to kind of carefully um, walk back from that and start over in a very neutral way that made sure that we were covering all of the basis when it came to what was going to have to be exposed publicly.
0: Stephanie, I'll bet you have a similar, if not exactly the same circumstances, but I'm, I'm sure you've encountered this a number of times. Do you have an example that would enlighten
1: our listeners? I've had this experience a number of times where I'm reinvestigating an issue that's that's already been looked at internally and retroactively it's decided that it was not an unbiased uh, inquiry. But in a similar vein, you know, we're often called in to investigate sort of preemptively a situation in a company where it's been determined that HR isn't the right choice. So HR has, looked into a number of complaints by maybe a particular person or a group of people and is view either views themselves or is, is somehow viewed as, as biased or ineffective based on that um or or just not the right choice based on that past history. And we're the fresh set of eyes that might be reassuring to the complaining party or a larger group, maybe even the department, that the process is going to be meaningful and fair. So that actually happens fairly frequently for us and it can actually be one of the goals of the investigation in such cases to send a message to everybody that you know this is really important we see that and uh, we mean business as far as as a company as far as addressing the issues that have been raised so i think it's really important to uh put some time and thought into you know who may or may not be the right person to conduct a particular workplace investigation so you know the worst case scenario is the the type of situation that Denise described and which I've been involved in as well, where you're redoing the work. Um, that obviously isn't ideal for anybody. And you also have the challenge of reinterviewing people who don't understand why they have to be interviewed again. so it, it it's 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 challenging on many levels. So you need to find somebody who's unbiased and who can come look at the situation with um really a fresh a fresh perspective.
2: Yeah, and part of the defense in one of these claims is a prompt thorough investigation. So if you're starting over, mm-hmm. you're already putting yourself at a disadvantage on conducting a prompt thorough investigation.
0: Right. That makes sense. And the second pitfall dovetails again into the first one, which is Having an investigator that might bring biases or prejudgments into the process, don't we all have biases and prejudgments, especially if you're part of the work group that's being investigated even perhaps tangentially as an HR professional? This one sounds particularly challenging. I think you've got another great example about bringing biases and prejudgments into the process. Many,
2: yes, many many examples of this. And unfortunately, we call it in our training sessions, we call it our rose-colored glasses. We all bring predispositions and kind of prejudgments into situations. And so that's why it's always as neutral as somebody may be as an investigator, even if they're, you know, part of your internal organization, it's really hard to forget some of those things you might know about the parties involved. This one situation is its pretty extreme, but I'll give it as an example is, I had coached an executive following an investigation into his behavior and he was accused of having relations with a coworker at a company event. He was actually witnessed, he was seen escorting a female colleague to his hotel room. The investigator, in my opinion, allowed her feelings about infidelity, extramarital relations to kind of seep into her investigation findings. Ultimately, when I was involved in coaching the executive, I learned that nothing inappropriate had actually occurred between the executive and the female colleague. The colleague had refused his advances, but the investigator had, in her findings, already poisoned his reputation and shared essentially her feelings about the alleged infidelity to other firm members. But he actually considered filing a defamation claim in response because his reputation had been damaged and nothing in fact had actually occurred. So this is a pretty significant situation in this organization. He's being accused of infidelity, he's being accused of having a relation with a coworker, and the investigator made conclusions and shared those without all of the facts. And so that was very problematic for this organization. And he, you know, in a return fashion wanted to clear his name because he, nothing in fact happened. And that's a hard thing to do once the damage has been done.
1: Yeah, just to add on to that, you know, this is the very reason why we're oftentimes called in. I had an investigation where the HR director had actually looked into some serious sexual harassment concerns that were raised and you know was convinced by them and terminated the uh, accused uh, employment. Uh, unfortunately, she had neglected to interview the accused as part of the investigation. So the investi- the uh, accused filed a lawsuit and ultimately the HR director was fired for not doing a fair and impartial investigation and for you know, concluding without giving the, the accused the benefit of an interview that the accusations were true. Now, it turned out after my investigation, which included in, in an interview of the accused, that the accusations did have merit, but unfortunately the process was biased. I was also called in to do recently an investigation of multiple and varied complaints in a particular department. And the client was really, was candid that they were fed up with many of these people and just didn't, really couldn't um, objectively listen to any more of, of, any any further complaints from these anyone in this group. And that's a smart client. You know, a client who can see that they are not the right person to look into concerns because, you know, the history and their feelings are, are likely going to color the outcome. So biases and prejudgments, especially of that nature, can be
0: really, really challenging to overcome, but it's really cri- critical to the veracity of the investigation. The third pitfall, also critical, underestimating the witness pool or limiting the process before you get your arms around the entirety of the investigation. Denise, can we call on you again to share an experience? We're limiting the witness pool or limiting the process. Had an effect on the veracity of the investigation.
2: Yes, definitely. This is I I identify this pitfall because first of all, let's be realistic that some of our clients they want an investigation, but they want to also be very aware of the cost of bringing in a neutral investigator. So they try to quote limit the investigation and make sure that there's not an inordinate amount of time being spent on it. And it's very hard, in my opinion, as a professional, to put parameters around an investigation. In order to be thorough, we really have to kind of look to all of the relevant factors and people that may have relevant information. So we don't operate, at least at EPS, we've never operated on a cap system where we'll go to a certain dollar amount and then we'll give you our findings. Um, That's just not how we operate. But let me give you an example of this situation and how it played out. They had uh, identified a a woman that was kind of their prodigy. Um, The senior leaders were really grooming her to be the next president and Ultimately, there was a complaint uh, by a colleague that this prodigy had engaged in inappropriate social media content, sexual banter, and bullying. This prodigy had ten direct reports, many of whom were friends, and they they actually socialized outside of work as well. I engaged in the investigation. I interviewed the first, let's say, seven direct reports, all who were speaking very favorably of the prodigy, They were very defensive of her, and if I had ended my inquiry there, I might have not found any of the evidence in the allegations, but when I finally was able to interview witnesses eight, nine, and 10, they told a completely different story, and they actually corroborated um, the inappropriate workplace conduct, which eventually led to the board terminating her. So if I had stopped at, you know, the first few, I might have not gotten to the ultimate resolution, which was that she was, in fact, there was a lot of evidence of her engaging in inappropriate social media and um, bullying behaviors that were, you know, were not obviously in the spirit of what this organization wanted as a leader in their organization.
0: Stephanie, what insight do you have? I know you've encountered these situations as we as we all have within our organization. What can you add in terms of the witness pool and kind of laying out the process before the investigation begins?
1: Well, I think it's really important that the person who's going to be investigating have the authority to dictate what the investigative, investigative process looks like without having anybody interfere. And everyone will want to at times. I've gotten pressure from top management, the parties involved, even uh, outside counsel at times as to what the investigation will look like. And oftentimes this is with the best of intentions. But the investigator needs to be clear about what she feels needs to be done under the circumstances and not be swayed by anyone who has an interest in the outcome. And on the flip side, it's important not to be redundant. So, you do need to rely somewhat on intuition. And, uh, you know, you don't want the, to keep the investigation going on unnecessarily if you feel solid on what you've got. If you do feel you have enough information to end the investigation, by all means, end it. And if you feel you need more, you know, more interviews or more information gathered in some other fashion, then you need to pursue it. So I I think it's, you know, a a lot of this is relying on your instincts and your experience as an investigator and not cowing to what other people feel should or shouldn't be done.
0: Experience is key and experience is also key in terms of the fourth pitfall which is breaching confidentiality, violating the need-to-know philosophy. This one is a biggie, and while experience is important, there are other factors, too. Stephanie, start us off on the confidentiality issue as it relates to workplace investigation.
1: Well, so this comes up pretty much in every investigation that I've ever done. Uh, Curiosity often surrounds drama in the workplace, and investigations. So it's not uncommon at all for people to inquire as to the status of an investigation, the outcome, even if they don't have a uh, legitimate business need to know. So this comes up all the time, and I, I don't think there's an easy or good fix to this, but the investigator needs to be clear on what the policy is on confidentiality, and the company needs to be willing to enforce it. So oftentimes, you know, we'll be reminding, and this comes up in training and investigations alike, we'll talk about a company's confidentiality policy, but everybody knows that it's not enforced. So the company needs to stand behind its policy, and the investigator needs to be clear on boundaries. Yeah, and and I'd elaborate
2: on that boundaries piece. Um, Really, when we start to, when you start to get inquiries from people outside of your witness pool, the investigator needs to stand strong on, on how they manage those inquiries, where they're coming from, and why. is it simply gossip? Is it that they do have information to share? So you really need to be careful about how you evaluate uh, people coming forward or people suggesting others to interview that may or may not have relevant information. And again, it is it's based on experience that you're going to know whether or not that additional people need to be included or not. And managing that confidentiality is so important to the accused. And it goes back to the point we made earlier where, in in the example I gave, where the executive was wrongfully accused of infidelity, you know, labeling somebody as guilty before you know the whole story goes against all of the premises that we bring to an investigation. So we really want to make sure that we are very careful to respect the confidentiality of those involved, including the accused.
0: Stephanie, is there something that you typically will say to a witness, perhaps at the end of the interview, to reinforce this notion of confidentiality? And I know the client is involved in, in sort of that determination or crafting the language often. But, but what is your typical uh, end of end of interview uh, admonishment or uh, word of wisdom to the witness?
1: yeah, so we couch it as a reminder, but we actually, as, as a matter of course, remind the witness both at the beginning and the end of an interview that the company has policies regarding confidentiality and retaliation. And we explain what those mean, meaning that only you know only those of the business need to know will have any information regarding this investigation. And in fact, if they're a witness and not a party, they're likely not going to know anything more about this situation. And they may be curious about it, and that's certainly natural and fine, but they need to resist the urge to act on that curiosity. So it depends on who you're interviewing, what message they might receive, but everybody is reminded in one way or another about you know, how important it is to respect the integrity of the invest- investigation and also others' privacy. And I think Great. as well, it's important that the the investigator, his or herself, be very careful about observing the boundaries we talked about before and also sharing information judiciously.
0: Very helpful. Let's move on to the fifth and final pitfall, which may be a the biggest, which is not attempting to control possible retaliation. Retaliation can be an enormous problem, and investigations are often ripe for that possibility. Denise, what are your thoughts on how retaliation can be controlled in in the wake of an investigation?
2: This is such a big concern, and what we find is that not only are we as the investigator trying to eliminate any potential retaliation, we also find that witnesses are very reluctant to come forward, often because they do feel like, despite the organization's best policies on anti-retaliation, that it's inevitable, and so it's very hard for them to be forthright when they feel like their job is in jeopardy, their, their assignments, they might, you know, they might not get the best opportunities. So we really work hard to overcome that and ensure and, and make them comfortable that there there will be no retaliation. However, you know that that is a hard thing to do when you are an outsider coming into the organization i'll give you one example where in an investigation that i was involved with the accused was interviewed very early in the process typically in my opinion i like to involve the accused at the end of the process after i've gathered all of the relevant facts from the witnesses but in this case it was reversed i was not the investigator And this accused person was told every possible allegation and by whom. And so the accused was then able, during the course of the investigation, to intimidate, discipline, threaten the other witnesses for participating in the investigation, and it became a really significant issue. Um so you really need to be cognizant of who you're telling what and then manage that person. And sometimes it involves actually taking the party out of the workplace during the course of the investigation and that may be, you know, obviously the organization can decide whether that's paid, unpaid, what have you depending on the allegations, but you really need to separate those parties just to minimize and hopefully eliminate any, any possible retaliation for participating in an investigation and or making your allegations known. I mean, people should not be afraid to come forward. This is why we have these policies. This is why there are protections in the workplace for these individuals. So we have to create a safe environment for them to feel comfortable stepping forward and getting this information out into uh, a, a place where we can look into it and make sure that we're addressing it appropriately.
1: Yeah, I would add, you know, this is, as Denise alluded to, you know, this is a legitimate concern that can really shackle the investigation process I just read that 75% of those complaining about sexual harassment feel they have been subjected to retaliation. So, And that's that's a staggering statistic. As I mentioned, we always remind witnesses about the company's policy regarding confidentiality, but also about the company's policy on retaliation, which needs to have teeth in order to be meaningful. So it's critical that the company be willing to act on this type of behavior and stand by its policy on retaliation. Retaliation
0: is a big one. Let me recap all five of the pitfalls that we talked about with regards to investigations. The first, choosing the wrong investigator or more specifically, choosing an investigator who's too close to the parties involved or who lacks independence. The second pitfall, bringing biases and prejudgments into the processes. The third pitfall, underestimating the witness pool or limiting the investigation process before the whole story is has unfolded. The fourth, breaching confidentiality, violating the need to know. And our fifth and final pitfall is not attempting to control possible retaliation. Those are the five pitfalls. Thank you, Stephanie and Denise, for alerting us to these investigation issues and providing examples and guidance on how to avoid them. Thank you also to our listeners for joining us today. You can learn more about EPS and our services at our website, EPSPROS.com. That's com. You can listen to this podcast and share it with others on both SoundCloud and in iTunes. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. We'd love to hear your feedback and better understand the employment practices challenges you face as an HR or employment law professional, and we hope you'll join us on upcoming podcasts. Thanks again.